Section 5 of The Outline of Science, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Quentin Jasper. The Outline of Science, Volume 4, by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 28, The Making of the Earth and the Story of the Rocks, Part 1. The Earth's Interior, Volcanic Eruptions. Origin of the Earth. In the opening chapters of this work, the modern theories regarding the origin of the Earth and its early history were briefly discussed. It may be regarded as certain that the Earth was originally part of a larger mass from which it and other planets were heaved off in the form of knotted spiral nebulae, like many of those to be observed in the heavens today. One of the two main theories of the origin of the Earth and the other planets is that of Laplace, according to which the planets were formed by the nebulae throwing off gaseous rings. Professor Chamberlain pictures this hypothesis thus. Starting as a gaseous globe, an early passage into a molten sphere wrapped in a hot, vaporous atmosphere was logically assigned the Earth. The atmosphere was made vast to contain all the water of the globe and the volatile matter that the heated conditions were presumed to have generated. At a later stage, a crust was assigned to the cooling globe, and the waters, condensing on this, gave the infant Earth the swaddling bands of a universal ocean. On further cooling, Shrinkage and deformation were supposed to follow, the waters to be gathered into basins, the land to appear, and the formation of Earth's strata to begin. Another view is the meteoric theory, according to which the more primitive stage of the nebulae was gaseous, but later the nebulae condensed into scattered meteorites, and such bodies as the planets were formed by passing through a stage of small scattered solid bodies. We quote Professor Chamberlain again. Quite in contrast with the older pictures of the primitive Earth, the planetesimal hypothesis, and this is entitled to be taken as the type of theories based on concentration from a scattered orbital state, postulates a solid Earth growing up slowly by accessions and coming to be clothed gradually with an atmosphere and hydrosphere. The Earth, the air, and the water are made to grow up together from smaller to larger volumes without necessarily attaining a very high temperature. The sources that at first had furnished the body of the ocean and the air, though they fell off as time went on, still continued to serve as means of replenishment, and to act as an offset to the familiar agencies of loss, far down into the later ages. The material of the Earth is similar to that of many of the other members of the solar system, though, of course, the materials may not exist in the same proportion. In its primitive stage, the Earth in its outer parts was liquid or gaseous. It was from its outer part that the Moon was detached and became a separate body. As we have seen in a previous chapter, the friction of the tides has carried the moon farther and farther away from the Earth. The primitive Earth, it is estimated, had a diameter of about 5,500 miles. It grew larger by drawing into itself more nebulous materials or meteorites, called planetesimals by Professor Chamberlain, until it had a diameter of 8,100 miles at the end of its growing period. After the growing period was over, the Earth began to lose volume. Today it has a diameter of 7,900 miles. It was cooling, and that usually means becoming smaller. It was also consolidating internally. On the surface, the Earth was probably like a mass of lava, alternately passing from crust-making to boiling over. The boiling process must have brought about a sorting of materials, the lighter materials coming to the top, and the heavier sinking to lower levels. The more acid, granitic materials would rise, basaltic materials would sink. Thus, roughly speaking, arose the rigid, rocky, relatively cool shell of the Earth, perhaps 50 miles thick, shutting in the internal heat. The continents are, on the whole, 
built of the lighter materials, for example, granites, while the depressions that form the floor of the ocean have more of the heavier basaltic rocks beneath them. In any case, a rocky shell or a lithosphere was formed, and the romance of the rocks is concerned with the permutations and combinations of the materials of the Earth's crust. In all probability, the Earth contains a metal core embedded in a mantle of rocks some 50 miles thick. The center of the Earth is about 4,000 miles beneath us. The deepest shaft ever bored reached a depth of only some 6,500 feet, or less than one and a half miles. For a knowledge of the conditions existing in the interior of the Earth, therefore, we must depend on the resources of scientific investigation. It is probable that the rocky crust of the Earth changes in its nature at a uniform rate, as the temperature rises, down to a certain depth, and beneath that, there is a sudden change in the conditions. We reach the beginning of the metal core, which is enveloped by the Earth's mantle of rocks. Paragraph 1. The Interior of the Earth. We owe a great deal of our knowledge of the interior of the Earth to earthquake waves and to volcanic eruptions. From earthquake waves, we are able to infer something of the elastic properties of the Earth's substance. From such phenomena, we learn that rigidity increases toward the center of the Earth. This is due to the effect of the pressure of the Earth's outer layers, which forces the molecules closer together in the most central part of the Earth. In earthquakes, the Earth tremors, starting from the focus of the quake, pass through the body of the globe as elastic waves. The principal waves, which are felt in a severe earthquake, and which cause the greatest oscillations of the ground, pass along the Earth's surface, and do not reach a great depth. Such waves are known as transverse waves, and have only half the velocity of the longitudinal waves, which are the first waves to arrive, and are called first precursors. It is these precursors which tell us most about the conditions of our globe. Their behavior shows that their paths lie through the body of the Earth, and from observations, it is possible to trace their paths through the depth of the globe. There are many seismologic stations at different places with instruments so fine and so carefully watched that the earthquake phenomena can be studied with utmost precision. By studying the manner of the propagation of earthquake waves, it is possible, with the aid of mathematical reasoning, to calculate their paths in the interior of the Earth and the velocity of their propagation. By such means, the condition and composition of the Earth's interior is ascertained. It is found, as already stated, that the rocky mantle or crust of the Earth extends down to about 50 miles. Below that, there is a central core of quite different and denser metallic material. It is possible that, beneath the outer solid crust, there exists, at no very great depth, a thin molten layer, so thin comparatively as not to produce in any perceptible degree diminution of the Earth's rigidity. It is unlikely that the substratum of the crust is liquid. It is merely plastic. Mr. Bailey Willis, in discussing What is Terra Firma, says, On what do mountains, continents, and ocean basins rest? Are there any rocks firm enough to bear the weight of mountains or continents without crushing? Among mountains, there are many that are more than three miles high, and some that exceed five miles. The weight of such a column would crush its base. Asia is so high that its weight must exceed the load which can be supported by rocks as we know them. The same is true of other continents. It seems reasonable to think, Mr. Willis says, that the foundations or rocks beneath the continents may approach a crushed condition, or may actually be crushed. The crushed condition is not, however, that of rocks which fall apart when crushed. For the foundations of continents and ocean beds are part of the solid earth, and are continuous all about the sphere. There is, therefore, no space into which any crushed mass can crumble. The strength of the rocks may be overcome, but they cannot fall apart. This condition has been reproduced experimentally, and it has been shown that marble, and even the firmest granite, may be forced to change form. 
yet to be held a coherent solid. The rock under these conditions may be compared to wax, if only we bear in mind that it remains all the time a very strong solid. That the temperature of the interior of the earth is very high is shown by the existence of hot springs and volcanoes, and by the rapid rise in temperature observed in mining operations, tunneling and drilling. The temperature in the interior of the earth, it is reckoned, attains some thousands of degrees centigrade, that the material of the earth nevertheless does not become liquid or even gaseous at such high temperatures, but is proved to be very rigid, must be attributed to the extreme pressure which packs the molecules together and robs them of their mobility. Keeping this in mind while trying to ascertain the physical behavior of bodies with increase of temperature, we may infer that the temperature in the interior of the earth must certainly remain below 9,000 degrees. In all probability, it does not even reach 4,000 degrees. Paragraph 2. Distribution of land and water. The question of the plan of the earth and the distribution of land and water over its surface is a very fascinating one. More than 40 years ago, Lothian Green pointed out that the continents correspond in position to the edges and solid angles of a tetrahedron, a figure with four triangular faces. The flat faces would be occupied by the Atlantic, Indian, Pacific, and Arctic Oceans. It was shown mathematically that if water could be held by gravity on the surface of a tetrahedron, so as to cover five-sevenths of the area, it would correspond in plan to the oceans of the world. It was further pointed out that a sphere, like the Earth, which was shrinking in volume without changing the area of its surface, would assume the form of a tetrahedron, although, in the case of a rapidly revolving body like a planet, the angles would be very much rounded off. This theory deservedly enjoys a great popularity. When we consider that animals and plants of the same families, and even of the same species, are found in equal abundance in widely separated regions, and that this is true of all geological ages, we are forced to conclude that continents, now separated by oceans, must once have been connected by bridges of land. Oftener than once, dry land has disappeared below the surface of ocean water. The bed of oceans has been raised above the surface and become dry land. But some areas have continued as land throughout nearly the whole of geological time. The fabled continent of Atlantis was supposed to have existed in the North Atlantic Ocean. Whether Plato's description of prehistoric Atlantis and the high state of the civilization of its inhabitants is incredible or not, there is little doubt that in very remote times there was a large landmass between the eastern and western continents. It is well established that, in the course of time, there has been a frequent interchange between land and sea areas. Nearly every part of England has undergone such changes. Land areas have been submerged beneath the sea, and alternately, the floor of the sea has been raised and become dry land. At the time, when the coal measures were formed in Europe, they flourished in Australia, India, South Africa, and South America alike, a number of distinctive forms of plants. It was therefore concluded that all these regions then formed part of an immense continent which had been called Godwana land. But an interesting new theory has quite recently been advanced by Professor Wegner, who suggests that in past ages, these continents were very much nearer to each other than at the present time. South America, Antarctica, Australia, and India can readily be fitted round South Africa, like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle so as to form a single landmass of far less astounding size than the vast Gondwana land. Professor Wegner regards the continental masses as blocks of lighter granitic rock, floating, like an ice flow in water, upon a sphere of heavier basaltic rock, which lies below the floors of the great oceans. In the tertiary epoch, not very long ago in geological time, these blocks became separated, and America drifted westwards away from the old world. At the present day, Greenland, at least, is moving away from Europe as much as 50 feet in a year. In front of the moving continent, 
the rocks were deformed and folded into the great mountain chains of the Rockies and the Andes, and with this were associated great outbursts of volcanic activity. Volcanoes We in the British Isles have little experience of earthquakes, and none of volcanoes. It was not always so. There are many records of volcanic eruption in this country. Indeed, these islands furnish a great body of evidence regarding volcanic action in prehistoric times. Many of the western isles of Scotland are partly built of volcanic rocks. Central Scotland at one time was the center of intense volcanic activity. North Berwick Law marks one of the chief vents. A great volcano built up Arthur's Seat and the Castle Rock at Edinburgh. So also with Eildon Hills and Roxburgh and the Cumbrae's in the Firth of Clyde, to mention only a few. The Cheviot Hills in the Lake District, ages ago, were also volcanic zones, and in Wales, Snowdon and Cater Idris were built up around volcanic centers. Throughout geological history, there have been great outbursts of volcanic activity, alternating with prolonged intervals of rest. The crust of the earth is subject to strain and stress due to the cooling of the earth and to its revolution, while in addition to other heavenly bodies may exert an attractive force. Disturbances of the earth's crust often produce a movement of the strata along fractures or faults, a fault being a displacement by which rocks are broken across and sink or rise to different levels. Rift valleys have been formed by areas settling down to a lower level than that of the surrounding region. The Western Mediterranean, the Dead Sea, the Red Sea, Tanganyika, and other African lakes lie in such areas where depressions have been formed in remote times. The upward and downward movements of the Earth's crust have given rise to the main configuration of the Earth. The variations in volcanic intensity during successive geological periods, Professor Gregory says, may be explained as due to the alternation of periods of violent disturbances of the Earth's crust with periods of slight and gentle movements. As the Earth shrinks in size, the crust sags gently downward. For a time, the crust may easily accommodate itself to the internal contraction, and volcanic activity is dormant. As the shrinkage proceeds, the crust becomes deformed and unstable, and the Earth ultimately recovers stability by great readjustments of the surface. During these movements, the crust is fractured and parts of it sink, and at such places the pressure on the underlying rock is especially heavy. This extra weight on the superheated plastic rock, and the opportunity given for its escape through the fractures, occasion fresh periods of volcanic activity. Volcanoes are closely related to the earth movements, which result in the fracturing of strata and folding of the earth's crust. Amongst the examples of periodically active volcanoes today is Vesuvius. The earliest recorded eruption of Vesuvius, 79 AD, destroyed Pompeii, leaving it a heap of hardened mud and ashes. Stromboli has been constantly active since the time of Homer. Sir Ray Lancaster, as an eyewitness, has vividly described Vesuvius in eruption. Vesuvius in eruption. The crater or basin formed by a volcano starts with the opening of a fissure in the Earth's surface, communicating by a pipe-like passage with very deeply seated molten matter and steam. Whether the molten matter thus naturally tapped is only a local through vast accumulation or is universally distributed at a given depth below the Earth's crust, and at how many miles from the surface, is not known. It seems to be certain that the great pressure of the crust of the Earth, from 5 to 25 miles thick, must prevent the heated matter below it from becoming either liquid or gaseous. Whether the heat of that mass be due to the cracking of the Earth's crust, and the friction of the moving surfaces as the crust cools and shrinks, or is to be accounted for by the original high temperature of the entire mass of the terrestrial globe, it is only when the gigantic pressure is relieved by the cracking or fissuring of the closed case called the crust of the earth that the enclosed deep-lying matter of immensely high temperature liquefies, or even vaporizes, and rushes into the up-leading fissure, 
Steam and gas, thus set free, drive everything before them, carrying solid masses along with them, tearing, rending, shaking the foundations of the hills, and issuing in terrific jets from the earth's surface, as though a safety valve into the astonished world above. The eruption he proceeds to describe was that of 1871. We walked up towards the observatory in order to spend the night on the burning mountain. We found that two white-hot streams, each about 20 yards broad at the free end, were issuing from the base of the cone. The glowing stones thrown up by the crater were now separately visible. A loud roar accompanied each spasmodic ejection. The night was very clear, and the white firmly cut cloud due to the steam ejected by the crater hung above it. At intervals, we heard a milder detonation, that of thunder which accompanied the lightning which played in the cloud giving it a greenish illumination by contrast with the red flame color reflected onto it by the red-hot material within the crater. The flames attributed to volcanoes are generally of this nature, but actual flames do sometimes occur in volcanic eruption by the ignition of combustible gases. The puffs of steam from the crater were separated by intervals of about three minutes. When an eruption becomes violent, they succeed one another at the rate of many in a second, and the force of the steam jet is gigantic, driving a column of transparent superheated steam with such vigor that as it cools into the condition of cloud, an appearance like that of a gigantic pine tree seven miles high, in the case of Vesuvius, is produced. We made our way to the advancing end of one of the lava streams, like the snout of a glacier, which was 20 feet high and moved forwards, but slowly, in successive jerks. 200 yards farther up, where it issued from the sandy ashes, the lava was white hot and running like water, but it was not in very great quantity and rapidly cooled on the surface and became sticky. A cooled skin of slag was formed in this way, which arrested the advancing stream of lava. At intervals of a few minutes, this cooled crust was broken into innumerable clinkers by the pressure of the stream, and there was a noise like the smashing of a gigantic store of crockery ware as the pieces or clinkers fell over one another down the nearly vertical snout of the lava stream, while as the red-hot molten material burst forward a few feet, but immediately became again crusted over and stopped in its progress. We watched the coming together and fusion of the two streams and the overwhelming and burning up of several trees by the steadily, though slowly advancing river of fire. We then climbed up the ash cone, getting nearer and nearer to the rim of the crater, from which showers of glowing stones were being shot. The deep roar of the mountain at each effort was echoed from the cliffs of the ancient mother crater, Monte Soma, and the ground shook under our feet, as does a ship at sea when struck by a wave. As we ascended the upper part of the cone, the red-hot stones were falling to our left, and we determined to risk a rapid climb to the edge of the crater, on the right or southern side, and look into it. We did so, and as we peered into the great streaming pit, a terrific roar, accompanied by a shuddering of the whole mountain, burst from it. Hundreds of red-hot stones rose in the air, to a height of 400 feet, and fell happily in accordance with our expectation, to our left. We ran quickly down the sandy side of the cone to a safe position, about 300 feet below the crater's lip, and having lit our pipes from one of the red-hot bombs, rested for a while at a safe distance and waited for the sunrise. A vast horizontal layer of cloud had now formed below us, and Vesuvius and the hills around Naples appeared as islands emerging from a sea. Sir Ray Lancaster also witnessed the great eruption of the following year. The great lava stream reached six miles down the mountain in the flat country below, destroying two villages, its course, narrow where it started, widened to three miles. After ten days, this river with all its waves and ripples was turned to stone and greatly resembled a Swiss glacier in appearance. A foot below the surface it was still red-hot, and a stick pushed into a crevice caught fire. Earthquakes and Geysers Some earthquakes are produced as a result of volcanic eruption, but many of the most severe earthquakes have no immediate connection with volcanic activity. 
They are due to a shifting of the Earth crust to a movement of the strata along the fractures or faults to which we have referred. Geysers, which are hot springs in which water is forced fountain-wise into the air, exist in volcanic areas, deriving their heat from volcanic sources. The most famous are in the Yellowstone National Park, Wyoming, USA. From one of these springs, the water is shot to a height of nearly 150 feet. Many geysers in America, in Iceland, and in New Zealand, the regions where they are best known, do not flow continuously, but squirt out jets of boiling water at intervals, which may be remarkably regular. The presence of geysers is an indication that the volcanic activity of the district is gradually dying away. End of section 5